Well, in the late 1500s in England, there were two guys named Thomas Lodge and Robert Green who wrote a stage play called A Looking Glass for London in England. A Looking Glass for London in England. And if you didn't know, a looking glass is just an archaic way of saying a mirror. So this play was written to reflect something like a mirror that might cause English playgoers at the time to see themselves in it. And this play begins in the palace of the evil King Rasni of Nineveh, who believes that he is God on earth. And as God on earth, he believes that his will is the law and that he can do whatever he wants. And he plans to marry his own sister and to have some concubines on the side. And why? Because he can. Because he's King Rasni. And then offstage, an angel brings a prophet named Oseus to a place overlooking the stage and says to Oseus, Lo, I have brought thee unto Nineveh, the rich and royal city, overgrown with pride, and as Sodom and Gomorrah, full of sin. And then we see little vignettes of daily life in the wicked city of Nineveh, violence and murder, corruption and injustice, licentiousness and debauchery. And then the prophet Oseus looks to the theater, theater audience and says, London, look on. This matter nips thee near. This sin reigns in thee, O London, every hour. And later we discover that King Rasni's sister is uh, just as much of an egomaniac as he is, and she suddenly gets struck by lightning and dies. But instead of acknowledging that this was the Lord's doing, King Rasni concludes that it was just a random chance accident of nature. And then at the snap of his finger, he takes for himself Alvida, the wife of the king of Paphlagonia. And why? Because he can. Because he's King Rasni. But then the king of Paphlagonia comes to confront King Rasni, overtaking his wife. But King Rasni's seductive influence over Alvida moves her to give her husband poison, and it kills him. And King Rasni calls her his goddess. And then the prophet Oseus looks to the audience and says, where whoredom reigns, their murder follows fast. London, see the sword of justice at thy back. And later a new character appears on stage, Jonas. And the rest of the story is basically the Jonas story, but with Jonas. And interspersed throughout the rest of the play are scenes that cut back to King Rasni. And in one of those scenes, King Rasni's evil henchman, Radagon, perishes right before his eyes in a flame of fire that appears out of nowhere. But instead of acknowledging that this was the holy God, the Lord's doing, King Rasni again concludes it was just a random chance accident of nature. And in another scene, King Rasni goes into this whole speech about how his eyes command the world and his hand upholds the world and his smile gives life to the world, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly, a hand appears in the sky wielding a fiery sword. But instead of acknowledging that this is a sign from the Lord, King Rasni concludes that it's just a random chance accident of nature again. And the prophet Oseus looks to the audience and says, take warning, wantons. Pride will have a fall. Woe to the land where warnings profit not. But at the end of the play, Jonas finally arrives in Nineveh and delivers God's message to the city. And in a divinely appointed awakening, everyone, even King Rasni, repents of their sin and turns to the Lord and is saved. And then the prophet Oseus looks to the audience one last time and says, look, London, look. With inward eyes, behold the lessons the events do here unfold. And just imagine being a 
totally unsuspecting playgoer sitting in that theater. And then at a certain point in the play, slowly sinking into your seat as you realize, oh, oh, this is about us. <laughs> well, just like those unsuspecting playgoers, I too had an oh, this is about us moment reading Nahum, the book we're gonna be looking at this morning. And if you didn't know, Nahum is kind of part two of the Jonah story. And it's actually the book of the Bible that tells us the most about the ancient city of Nineveh. And so if you were here a couple months ago when I preached on the book of Jonah, uh, you may recall that I spent a lot of time talking about the awakening that happened in Nineveh and how the book of Jonah teaches us four things about salvation, that God is the initiator of salvation, that God is the bringer of salvation, that God is the accomplisher of salvation, and that God is the keeper of salvation. And I didn't really touch on Nineveh's sin or on God's wrath and justice against sin because salvation is the greater theme of the book. But in the book of Nahum, part two of the Jonah story, wrath and justice are the greater themes and they're directed toward the once repentant but now once again degenerate city of Nineveh. So, as we talked about Nineveh as a picture of our salvation in Jonah, this morning we'll talk about Nineveh as a picture of our need for salvation, okay? But before we do, let's just pray and ask God to bless our time together in his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, we ask that by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be made to see with inward eyes those things that the book of Nahum shows us about ourselves and about our weakness and about our need. But Lord, most importantly, those things about you and your power and your fountain of love and mercy that flows from Emmanuel's veins by which through faith our every stain of sin and guilt is cleansed, washed white as snow. So Lord God, we just ask that you would help us now. Amen. So before we get into the book, I wanna give just a brief historical timeline. So Jonah prophesied sometime during the reign of King Jeroboam II who reigned in Israel from 782 to 753 BC. Then in 745 BC, Tiglath-Pileser, there's a name, the third, becomes king of Assyria and he launches a crusade to expand the Assyrian Empire by bloodshed and murder. Then in 727 BC, Shalmaneser V becomes king of Assyria and he's the guy that starts the invasion and exile of Israel in 722 BC. But Sargon II succeeds him that same year, and he's the guy who finishes the invasion and exile of Israel in 722 BC. Then in 705 BC, Sennacherib becomes king of Assyria, and he attacks Judah. And in 700 BC, he establishes Nineveh as the capital of Assyria, okay? And then in 681 BC, Esharhaddon becomes king of Assyria and he continues to oppress Judah. And then in 669 BC, Ashurbanipal becomes king of Assyria and he continues to oppress Judah. And it's probably within the first decade of his reign that Nahum writes his prophecy concerning Nineveh. So this is 100 years after Jonah and it's a new generation. But now, after a hundred years of increasing wickedness, God has decided, you know what? Enough is enough. So let's start with part one of the book, which is also chapter one, Nineveh's destruction declared. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Nahum. Nineveh's destruction declared will be part one, chapter one. We'll start with verses one through three A. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. 
The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So first, notice that Nahum mentions God's vengeance upon his enemies three times in one sentence. He is avenging, avenging, avenging. It reminds me of the angels in the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation who raised the attribute of God's holiness to the superlative third degree, saying that he is what? Holy, holy, holy. Repetition is the biblical author's way of emphasizing and stressing a point. And also, take note of the ominous words in verse three, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum's saying that Nineveh's doom is certain and inescapable. And as a more general principle, it's also true that God will never turn a blind eye to sin or just sweep sin under the rug. And why? Because he is a just judge. Amen. And that should bring great fear to those who know that they are guilty. But that should bring great comfort to those who know how their sin and guilt has already been dealt with. Amen? Right. And then Nahum describes God's sovereign power over the land and the sea and all creation. And then in verse 6a, he asks, who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before God's indignation? In effect, he's saying, God is not happy with you, Nineveh. And if God has power over everything in all creation, do you not think he has power over you as well? And then the next verse, verse seven, seems to come out of left field. Says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. This verse is intended to bring comfort to Judah. And the Hebrew word used here for the word knows is yada. Yada. Hey kids, can you say that? Yada. Not Yoda, that's his brother, yada, we're talking about. Yada. Parents, it's the same word used in Genesis chapter 4 where it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. So here, Nahum's not saying, God knows of his people, he knows who they are. It's not very encouraging. He's saying, God knows each one of his people deeply, intimately, lovingly, like a husband knows his bride. And that should make Nineveh shudder and tremble with fear because they are guilty of violating the heavenly husband's bride. Filling the cup of his wrath and vengeance full to the brim, made ready to be poured out. And that's exactly what we see in the next verse, verse eight. It says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And then there's another word of comfort for Judah in verses 12 and 13. It says this, thus says the Lord, though they, the Assyrians, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down like trees and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his, King Ashurbanipal's, yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. So, though God has providentially allowed the Assyrians to oppress Judah as punishment for their sin, he's now going to free them from that oppression. And then the last verse of chapter one, verse 15, we see another word of comfort for Judah. It says, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again 
Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. There is a blessed future in store for Judah. And what the Assyrians did to them will never happen again. Now, let's look at part two. Chapters two and three. Nineveh's destruction described. So part one was Nineveh's destruction declared, and now we're going to read about Nineveh's destruction described. Now, Nineveh, if you didn't know, it was a massive city built up on a mound overlooking everything. And get this, it was surrounded by not just a giant wall, but two rows of giant walls, the innermost of which was about 100 feet high and wide enough for three chariots to race side by side on top of it. That's a lot of concrete. And surrounding the walls was a giant moat. (laughs) The city was virtually impenetrable until 612 B.C., when God used the Medes and the Babylonians to fulfill these prophecies that we're going to read right now. Let's read some of them. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 6 says, The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Now, we know from history that the Medes and the Babylonians dammed up the Tigris River north of the city, And then, at a certain point, when enough water had built up, they opened the floodgates, which sent that water crashing into and through the walls, both city walls, destroying everything. Chapter 2, verse 8, look at this. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. The picture is that of the people of the city running for their lives while the commanders of the city cry, halt, halt, don't run, stand and fight. But in terror, none turns back. Chapter two, verse 10 describes this terror with a little more detail. It says, desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says this, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of Ninevites slain, heaps of Ninevite corpses, dead Ninevite bodies, without end. They stumble over the bodies. Now, Assyria, you got to know this, Assyria was viciously brutal. They impaled the bodies of their enemies on sticks and made pillars out of their severed heads and displayed their other dismembered body parts in various ways, all as a visual statement to the other nations, don't even think about standing in our way. And so, it's ironic a bit of poetic justice that when they stood in God's way, the result would be hosts of their slain and heaps of their corpses and so many of their dead bodies seemingly without end. And let's read just one more passage. Chapter three, verses five through seven. Behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face and will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Nineveh, is going to be utterly humiliated and will become a spectacle, it says, for all the nations to see and know that this is what happens when you oppose the Lord. And that's pretty much the gist of the book of Nahum. Let's pray, just kidding. (laughs) 
That's the gist of the book, but I suspect that we probably aren't yet seeing how Nineveh is a looking glass for you and me. So let's think about this a little more deeply. In St. Augustine's book, he lived in the 300s, 400s. In his book, The City of God, he introduces us to the two opposing kingdoms or cities in existence today. He calls one the city of God, the other is the city of man, okay? The city of God is an eternal, heavenly, God-centered, God-exalting city of which God and his angels and all his redeemed people are citizens, and the city of man is a temporal, earthly, self-exalting, self-centered city of which Satan and his demons and all fallen, unredeemed humanity are citizens. City of God, city of man. Now, there was a Greek philosopher, 500s BC, named Protagoras. He's often referred to as the father of humanism. Protagoras, the father of humanism. And he's famous for coining the phrase homo mensura, man measure, or man is the measure, meaning it's not God, but mankind who is the supreme ruler and measure of all things. What's interesting, though, is that according to Scripture, humanism began long before Protagoras, and it didn't even begin with a human. Let's read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Essentially, the serpent was saying, God is hiding something from you. Don't you want to know what it is? I know what it is because my eyes have been opened. Take the fruit. Your eyes will be opened too. And you'll be just like me and just like God, a king of your own kingdom. And we know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve are seduced by this illusion of autonomy, self-rule, the building of a city whose king is me. And as a result, Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. And a new kingdom, a new way of life is established here on earth, the city of man. And from that day on, the city of man begins to grow and spread. Right after the fall, Cain murders his own brother Abel. And he's banished from God's presence too. And then what happens next? Genesis chapter four, verses 16 and 17 says this. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So the very first literal city we read about being built in Scripture is built by Cain, the murderer and enemy of God, and it's built in honor of his son, his offspring, and then if you read the genealogy of Cain, you see the names of all these people that only expand upon Cain's wickedness and continue to build the city of man. Of course, that only lasts so long before God decides to destroy mankind by flood, sparing only one family. But even after starting over with this one grace-covered family, Mankind eventually comes together and says in Genesis chapter 11, 
verse 4a. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. This was the world's first united declaration of humanism. And what we see in book after book of the Bible is the city of man, like a self-replicating genetic virus, just continuing to spread and infect and destroy humanity. My point is this. Nineveh was nothing unique, but just an antitype, a representation and an outgrowth of this archetypal city of man. Or to put it differently, the spirit of Nineveh and King Ashurbanipal was a spirit as old as fallen humanity itself. A spirit of rebellion against the true king as one desires to be his own king. And I don't know about you, but there is certainly something in me that resonates with that rebellious desire to be king. I am constantly tempted to think of my job here at the church and my family and my friends and my home and my money and my success and my status as my little kingdom built up by my skills and my intelligence and my power. It's the self-made mentality but it's a deadly illusion because the only kingdoms we will ever really rule are imaginary ones. And so whatever power we hold in this life should be held loosely because it is entirely a gift from God and should be stewarded wisely because it's not ours to do with whatever we want and should be used to build the city of God because his is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. His is the kingdom that was and is and will forever be. And we can think about all this a little more deeply. If we come away from the book of Nahum saying, well, I don't oppress specific people groups, and uh, I don't plunder others' goods, and uh, I don't murder people, so the book of Nahum doesn't really apply to me. If we say that, then we've made a serious mistake because the sins of oppression, plunder, and murder were not Nineveh's fundamental problems. See, just as the city of Nineveh itself was a representation and an outgrowth of another city, the city of man, a deeper, unseen reality, the oppression, plunder, and murder committed by the city were also representations and outgrowths of deeper, unseen realities. For example, do you remember what Jesus said about the command against adultery? He said, let me add to that command. If you even look upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Meaning, physical adultery is just an external representation and outgrowth of an internal, deeper, unseen sin from which all adulteries proceed. Lust. Lust is the root of the sin. Physical adultery is just one of the branches that grows out from that root. And you can saw off that branch. You can stop sleeping around, but what still remains is that deadly root of lust. So lust is the issue. And lust must be addressed and lust must be uprooted and something else must be planted in its place which will produce life-giving branches that bear fruit. That's what scripture says. My point is this. 
just as those unsuspecting playgoers in the late 1500s who realized that the play A Looking Glass for London and England was about them, I think that you and I today may see ourselves in Nineveh when we recognize the roots beneath their branches of sin, like pride, jealousy, greed, hatred, all things we've been guilty of, all deadly roots of sin inside of us too. So I want to end this morning. I've already given a few applications, you know, stewarding or holding our power loosely, stewarding our power wisely, using our power to build the city of God, recognizing sin, addressing sin, uprooting sin all at the root level. But what I see more specifically in the book of Nahum is a slow and subtle drift away from the city of God, the Nineveh in Jonah, right back into the city of man, the Nineveh here in Nahum. So I'll end this morning by giving three specific applications to help us keep our eyes on the city of God. But before I give those three, I have one application for the unbeliever, okay? And that is this. Abandon your city for the city of God. Abandon your city for the city of God. See, ultimately, the book of Nahum is about you because Nineveh is a picture of the fate of every nation and every people who sets themselves against God and lives for their own glory as kings of their own kingdom. The writer David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, but was very perceptive and I think got a lot of things right, he gave the commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005 and at one point in his speech he said this. He said, Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. Our natural, hardwired default setting is to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. And here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. But if you worship your money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship your power, and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings, and the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed this force in ways that has yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom, the freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms. Every man who disappears into his own mind thinks he is king and thinks he is free, but his kingdom is only as large as his own head, and he sits upon an imaginary throne. And the reality is he's made himself a slave to a cruel master himself, worshiping his stuff, but always feeling empty, never having enough, worshiping his body, but always feeling ugly, never beautiful enough, 
worshiping his power, but always feeling weak, never strong enough. Worshiping his intellect, but always feeling stupid, never smart enough. You know what else is ironic? Humanism is fundamentally anti-human. Humanism is anti-human. See, the craziest thing about the serpent's words to Adam and Eve, you can be like God, was that they were already like him. They were already like God because they were created by God in God's image to reflect in themselves his glory to the rest of the creation. But the serpent said, oh, no, no, no. You want to be like God? Reflect your own glory and be a king of your own kingdom like me. But instead of becoming kings, Adam and Eve became slaves. And instead of becoming more like God, Adam and Eve became so much less like God than they had ever been. And instead of reflecting any glory, Adam and Eve reflected depravity. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet bent the knee to the true king, then you need to know that you are living in rebellion contrary to the way God has created you to live and you stand before him today guilty in your sin and you can't get rid of it you can't pretend it's not there God sees it all every sinful action of the hands and body every sinful thought of the mind and imagination every sinful desire of the heart and will And all that sin is crying out against you for justice to the avenging, avenging, avenging king who will by no means clear the guilty. But there is good news. There is great news. Because 2,000 years ago, this king stepped off his throne and left his kingdom and came into our world, the city of man, this realm drowning and dying in sin. And he lived a perfect, sinless, God-glorifying life of obedience before the holy God, the kind of life that we ought to live before God but cannot. And then he relinquished all personal power he had when he laid down his life for ours allowing himself to be crucified, to die in our place, to pay the price that our guilt deserved. And today, if you will turn away from your sin and rebellion and trust in the loving, merciful King Jesus, you will be saved and you will be transferred out of the city of man, this city of darkness and slavery and death into a new city, the city of God, which is a kingdom of light and freedom and life. Abandon your city for the city of God today through Jesus, the only Savior. And for those of us who have already trusted in Jesus, here are three applications to help us keep our eyes on the city of God. Number one, remember who you now are. Remember who you now are. I love this passage in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow. The judgment we deserved has been overcome by mercy, and the rejection we faced has turned to belonging, and the darkness we lived and walked in has been swallowed up by light. And how? 
The text says that it was through him, through Jesus, the light of the world, who came into our darkness to rescue us and bring us into his kingdom of light. The good shepherd who was despised and rejected that we, his sheep, might be brought in to the fold of God. The bread of life whose body, according to justice, was broken for us that we, that we in our starving souls according to his mercy, might receive the food of his divine life and never hunger again. He's the true vine into whom we, like branches, have been grafted and from whom we now draw nourishment and grow and bear fruit as an outgrowth of his presence and power and word which has taken root in our heart. He's the great I am, the eternal God and source of all truth and goodness and beauty, all of which have clothed us as a garment covering our every ignorant and evil and ugly deformity of heart and flesh so that now when God the Father looks upon us, he sees the truth and goodness and beauty of Jesus being reflected through us, meaning Jesus is now the looking glass for you and me. Jesus is now the looking glass for you and me. Remember who you now are, an image bearer of the King of Kings. Second application, remember what you now have. Remember what you now have. In 1529, Martin Luther wrote what would become one of the most famous hymns of all time. A mighty fortress is our God. And the hymn was largely inspired by Psalm 46. And it begins saying, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The psalmist says that God is our refuge and in the day of trouble, we can run to him and hide in him and trust that vengeance belongs to him, not us. And in the book of Nahum, we see that the Lord knows the persecutions of his people and does not stand aloof. Justice is his and he will repay in his timing And the psalmist also speaks about this river whose streams make glad the city of God. And he's talking about the Jordan River which runs right through the nation of Israel and whose streams give life and greenery to an otherwise dry and barren desert. But you know what? Israel was never called the Holy Land because it was so lush and fertile it was called the Holy Land because God's presence was there. And the Jordan River was a real life metaphor for the life that God's presence gives. God's presence is the still water that restores the soul even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and by the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us. God's presence is always near. 
Remember what you now have, a refuge whose presence with you is life. And the third application is this. Remember where you are now going. Remember where you now are going. You may recall a scene from Disney's Alice in Wonderland where Alice is lost in the woods and there's all these signs and arrows pointing in every direction and then the Cheshire cat appears above her in a tree and she asks him, which way should I go? And the Cheshire cat says, that depends. Where are you going? She said, well, I don't know. And then he says, then it doesn't really matter. It's so important to keep on the forefront of our minds where we are going or else what's the point of going at all? So, where are we going? I'm going to turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll end our time here in Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four says this. Then I saw, this is the Apostle John speaking, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What a beautiful picture. God himself wiping away the tears that this world caused us as a new world with no more death or mourning or pain or crying descends. And let's read down in, oops, lost my spot here. And let's read down in verses 22 through 24. It says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In this place, there will be no need of a temple because we'll be in the immediate presence of God and his glory will shine so brightly that there will be no more need of the sun and there will be no more darkness. Let's read just one more passage. Revelation chapter 22, last chapter of the Bible, verses one through four, it says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There's a whole sermon series in those four four verses, but I'll just say this. In this place, the tree of life, the tree that Adam and Eve, if you remember, were denied access to when they were banished from the Garden of Eden, It's planted here in the eternal city. And the text says, no longer shall there be anything accursed, meaning not a single trace of the curse of sin will be found here. And then lastly, we will see his face. One day, our very eyes will behold the majesty of our King Jesus, face to face. That is where we are now going. Remember that.
And all of this is so important for us to hear this morning because the reality is that even now as citizens of the city of God, there is still something sick and sinister inside all of us that lusts to return to the city of man and to believe in the illusion of autonomy. Even though we know that it is a mirage in the desert, we've been to that place, we know there's no life there, we know it's a false reality, and yet something within us always beckons us to return. But when we remember who we now are and what we now have and where we are now going, by God's grace, that inner voice is silenced and those illusions disappear and every imaginary kingdom is crushed under the weight of the reality that Jesus Christ is the only king forever. Amen. So, this morning, as we stand in awe of our King Jesus, let us celebrate that we will see him soon and that he is here right now amongst us and that he is now and forever the looking glass for you and me. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, the words of that hymn, Come Thou Fount, come to my mind. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh Lord, what remarkably honest words that are so true. Lord, we recognize and repent of any ways that we have begun to backslide right back into that wicked and depraved city from which we have been rescued. Oh Lord, though we are prone to wander, make us more prone to follow. Lord, we ask that you would make our eyes to see the horrors and evil and pain of that old city, but more importantly, to see your glory and the glories of your kingdom, of which we are now a part, and also the beauty of its most gracious and loving king, who is Jesus. We ask that in times of weakness, Lord, that you would remind us of who we now are because of you and what we now have because of you and where we are now going because of you. For your glory alone, amen.